Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Censored. The show about books that can poison your mind and degrade your morals. Bring it on, I say. My name's Aoife Vrtnach, historian and dabbler in literature studies. If you'd like to support the show, please rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also drop over and say hi on Twitter. I'm at CensoredPod. This episode is about a book with a very rich censorship history. The Well of Loneliness, by Radcliffe Hall, was published in 1928. It told the story of Stephen Gordon, who was identified female at birth, but their physical and emotional development convinced their father and themselves that they weren't a girl in the traditional sense. As an adult, Stephen has passionate love affairs with women and refuses to bend to social pressure to change their appearance or sexual preferences. The text treats Stephen and their lovers and friends very sympathetically. This is not a morality tale where anyone deviating from the norm is inherently evil. Well of Loneliness is now considered a classic of lesbian and trans fiction. With a subject matter like this, you're probably not surprised it was controversial. But nobody took much notice of it at first. It received a few favourable reviews, but it didn't make a huge splash. All that changed when a journalist whipped up a moral panic about the book. Suddenly, Hall found themselves at the heart of a major censorship show trial that made their novel notorious. To give you an idea of how significant a news story it was, this London trial appeared in the Cork Examiner, an Irish provincial newspaper. The book was banned as obscene in England in 1928, and that should have been the end of it for Irish readers too. Irish booksellers sourced their supplies from Britain. A ban in England was de facto a ban in Ireland also. Funnily enough, that close connection with Britain was one reason why the Irish government created its own independent censorship law in 1929. Pernicious English immorality was a serious threat to the otherwise pure-minded Irish Grail. So we created a censorship board, to keep the tide of English smut at bay. But weirdly, the first blacklist, issued by the new board, repeated the English decision to ban the Well of Loneliness. This was both unnecessary and superfluous. Why did the censors prioritise the Well of Loneliness? Why bother to censor a book that was effectively banned already? Was it a statement of intent about queer literature? Or was it because of the publicity around the obscenity trial? To help me explore this complicated text and its history, 
I'm joined by Professor Jana Funke from the University of Exeter. She works on modernist literature and the history of sexology. Together with Dr. Hannah Roach, she is working on the first critical edition of Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness, which will be published in 2023. Hi, Anna. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for asking me to be part of this. Oh, this is going to be very exciting. And normally I do start with a drink. There is a problem with this book and I found it pretty angsty and I'm a bit worried that if I had a drink, I might cry. Uh, the drinks that I noticed throughout the book were brandy for moments of great, intense emotional shock and whiskey also as a pick-me-up. So they seem to be the only things that I noticed. But did I miss something? Was there anything else? No, I mean, that's pretty much it. So the book does mention whiskey and soda, brandy and soda a few times. But Stephen Gordon, who is the main character, is actually not a big drinker at all. So um, Stephen Gordon really hates alcohol and hates drinking. So I was thinking about this a little bit, you know, what's the drink that should go along with the well of loneliness? And there is actually quite a touching scene between Stephen and another character called Miss Puddleton or Puddle, who is Stephen's teacher and later becomes a very close friend and someone who also really understands what Stephen is going through. And in this scene, Puddle makes a hot chocolate for Stephen with four lumps of sugar added, uh, because apparently Stephen likes very, very sweet hot chocolate. So I was thinking maybe an extra sweet hot chocolate, maybe with a little bit of whiskey or branded added to it, if that's what people want, that might be a good drink to get you through the 400 or 500 pages of this novel. Yes, that is a very good drink. It is sweet, comforting and with a little kick. That's uh, perfect. I was disappointed at the scenes in Paris that they weren't living it up in a champagne lifestyle. But unfortunately, it's not that sort of book, which we will get to later. So I always begin with that very simple and kind of reductive question. Why was it banned? In Ireland specifically, I suppose. It's not explicit by my standards. It's not even really about sex, in my opinion. But was it the subject matter? Was it the fame of the book that spurred the Irish censor to ban it? I mean, I think so. I think that's my reading as well. So when the book was first published in the UK... Actually, initially, it didn't, uh, there wasn't that much attention paid to it at all. So it did receive some fairly measured reviews. Some people liked it, thought it was brave or interesting in terms of the subject matter. Other people said that it wasn't very well written and there were issues around the style that several critics picked up on. But I mean, it received some decent reviews in prominent literary journals. And then all of this radically changed on the 19th of August, 1928, when a guy called Sir James Douglas published a highly polemical review of the book in the Saturday Review, which we can talk about later as well. But I think basically this really started the whole campaign to get the book censored. And I think the reason was very much that Hall was writing openly about what was at the time called sexual inversion. So I can quickly unpack that term because it's not a very familiar familiar term maybe today, but uh, it's a term that comes from sexology. Um, so Havelock Ellis and John Eddington Simmons coined that term sexual inversion. Nowadays, I think uh, we would probably tease that term apart a little bit more. So it conflates trans identity and cisgender gay or lesbian identity, which are very much, you know, conflated or entangled in that term sexual inversion. So I always say that we should think about The Well of Loneliness as a book that's part of lesbian history, um, cis lesbian history, and also trans 
history. Um, but when it comes to the censorship trial, the main outrage was caused by the fact that people like James Douglas read it as a book that was about love, desire, sex between women. And I think it's not just that Hall wrote about that topic, but it's also that um, the novel was quite accessible and it was seen as a very readerly book that loads of people could potentially have access to. So whereas sexology was very technical, very difficult to read, there were anxieties that a novel might be more accessible to a wider reading public. And so that caused uh, some alarm. And then also the main reason, I think, was the fact that Hall did not condemn so-called sexual inverts, that Hall was very uh, positive about sexual inversion and basically made the case that so-called sexual inverts should have the right to exist in society, to be in relationships, that they should be acknowledged, respected, and so on. And so I think those were really the reasons, the accessibility of the book or the perceived accessibility and the fact that it was positive or even celebratory in some some pages on some, in some passages. In fact, in the book, sexology texts appear, don't they, where Stephen Gordon's father is reading them to try and understand a, a person who is labelled as his daughter. But he's like, I'm not sure that girl properly matches this person and I'm trying to work out what might help to understand. So there is a sense that that obscure branch of sexology is being dragged into an actual real life situation and placed in a dramatic context. And then you're like, oh, so that's what it might look like, which is quite an incendiary thing to do, isn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, that pa that, that um, part of the book where Stephen Gordon, after their father's death, discovers the sexological studies in uh, the father's office or study. It's a really interesting moment in the book because it's a book that has this very rich censorship history, but it's also a book that in very knowing ways engages with books that were censored or repressed. I mean, sexology was often censored in the UK, for instance, as well. Um, and there is this moment that you mentioned where Stephen Gordon finds a key to uh, a locked uh, cupboard in the father's study. And then there are these sexological books hidden behind other books. And finally, Stephen Gordon has access to the books and then, in a sense, finds themselves within sexology and finds themselves within that category of the sexual invert, which is very much a kind of presented as a, as a dangerous form of knowledge in the book. It's quite fascinating that the way it talks about censorship and how you might learn about things that are forbidden or different or obscure. It is really quite clever. And I think it was actually banned because of that coverage around the censorship trial, because the trial itself of the book, ostensibly for obscenity, made headlines even in provincial Irish newspapers. So you, I can only imagine how big it was in London. It was a big deal, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it was a huge scandal. And I always feel like had James Douglas not written that editorial piece, had it not actually been put on trial, I don't know if we would be talking about The Well of Loneliness today or if it would just kind of have faded away as just another book that was written in the 20s. And absolutely, I think that targeted campaign, the way it was picked up, the way it resonated, and then also the backlash to the censorship trial, because so many people came out to support Radcliffe Hall and to speak up for the book. All of that, I think, created uh, this moment around the novel. And I I think it's the reason why we're still talking about it today. So when it finally comes before the courts, like technically under law, this is a very simple little, you know, procedural matter almost. But so many people show up, isn't it? It attracts such a star cast of stellar authors at the time. Can you tell me a bit more about them? 
Absolutely. So I think to understand why so many people actually decide to rally around Rector Fall in the book, I think we need to talk a little bit about the James Douglas review in the um, Sunday Express, because that was such an important piece to kickstart the whole debate about uh, the novel. So James Douglas has an interesting relationship to censorship anyway. He was involved in getting um, D.H. Lawrence's uh, The Rainbow censored. He was involved in getting Rose Alatini's Despised and Rejected censored. So he's really on a kind of campaign against so-called indecent or immoral literature. And then when The Will of Loneliness comes out, he says, okay, definitely this book has to be censored. And then he writes this now famous editorial um, with the title, A Book That Must Be Suppressed. And it has this really famous line that has often been cited where he says, I would rather give a healthy boy or a healthy girl a file of Prusik acid than this novel. And when you, when you read the editorial, it's a horribly homophobic article. I mean, it basically says that England uh, needs to defend itself against homosexuality, which is taken over from the continent. Germany and France have, France have already been overrun by uh, homosexual people. And now England has to defend itself and protect its children. It's that kind of rhetoric. He mentions the Oscar Wilde trial, which, of course, is a very kind of straightforward way of creating or feeding into a certain kind of moral panic about the seduction or corruption, especially of young readers and young people. So he writes that uh, editorial piece and that really starts the whole campaign. The Home Secretary gets involved and then finally Jonathan Cape, the UK publisher, is put on trial. But I think because of that over-the-top rhetoric and the way in which Douglas was really um, fighting against modern literature and the right of modern authors to talk about topics around sexuality that so many authors were keen to write about. For that reason, so many people become involved and actually defend Rector Fall. So, for instance, regarding the Bloomsbury Group, famously E.M. Forster, uh, Virginia and Leonard Wolf, um, Lytton Strachey, Vita Sackville-West, they all start to speak up on behalf of Rector Fall and they also attend the trial and are willing to actually provide evidence and a kind of expert testimony in support of Rector Fall. And this despite the fact that they think it's a terrible book. They think it's terribly written. They don't particularly like Rector Fall and her personality and her kind of like Catholicism and all of this. So they don't like her. They don't like the book, but they absolutely think that there should be freedom of speech and that authors should have a right to talk about sexuality, including homosexuality or other queer sexualities. And for that reason, they're willing to literally go to the court and speak up. You mentioned Radcliffe Hall's Catholicism. That was one of the things that really surprised me about the book was how godly it was. There were a lot of echoes of religious language, prayers, hymns, psalms throughout. Oh, I recognize that piece. And then there are the direct discussions of God and Christianity and the place of Stephen as an invert within this Christian universe. I was very surprised by that, I will admit. And I was wondering why we don't talk about it more. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think Hall is very interesting in terms of opening up a kind of queer history around Catholicism in particular. I mean, there were loads of famous queer writers, including Oscar Wilde, um, who were very interested in Catholicism. And it had a kind of place within early 20th century uh, queer culture. So with regard to Hall, um, they were raised Anglican, but then they were inspired by uh, a partner they had early on in their life called Mabel Batten, who was a uh, Catholic. And then in 1912, Rector Fall converted to Catholicism. 
And Hall is always someone who is quite um, radical. When they decide to do something, they really go for it. So they convert to Catholicism and then uh, they even secure an audience with Pope Pius X um, quickly after their conversion. They travel to Rome and meet the Pope. And I think Hall really found something affirming within the sense of ritual, routine. I think the celebration of suffering and salvation and martyrdom that you get within Catholicism really, really appealed to Radcliffe Hall. And you see this in the Well of Loneliness. I mean, Stephen Gordon is born on uh, Christmas Eve. Um, they're called Stephen after the first martyr within Christianity. Um, and I think as a child, they even identify with Jesus or they feel that they are Jesus. And so I think Radcliffe Hall as an author herself, but also Stephen Gordon very much see themselves as a martyr for the cause of the so-called sexual invert. And that through writing, through becoming an author and articulating the plight, the suffering of the sexual invert, it's almost a form of redemption. And so you're right. I mean, the book has so many biblical references from the mark of Cain that Stephen feels they carry to this idea of finding salvation through writing. Um, it's it's a kind of language of 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 um, of I think a God given right to exist, which Hall is mobilizing in the book. So the sense that sexual inversion is natural and God has created sexual inverts as a minority group, and so it's a matter of fighting for the right to exist, which is something that, according to Hall, God would have very much affirmed. It is a direct challenge to the Christian culture at the time, which is definitively defining itself against any queer sexuality. And that, I think, must have been part of the reason people were so offended by it. It's saying, look, I am Christian and I want to be part of the Christian universe on Christian terms. I was wondering, when Radcliffe Hall went to the Vatican to meet the Pope, in the suit with the short hair and the brogues and the whole thing... <laughs> I think this probably was before they cut off the hair. So, oh. okay. <laughs> but they always, they went with the fashion of the times and they would have been a very kind of modern way of presenting themselves, even in the early 1910s when they met the Pope. But I think for Rector Ford, they were always embedded within Catholic circles, even later on in the 1910s, 1920s, when uh, they take on this kind of more um, idiosyncratic, I guess, way of presenting themselves, which we now associate with Rector Ford, with the short hair and the suits and the tailored uh, clothing. Um but they always found people who supported them. And um, later on, their lifelong partner, Lady Una Trubusch, was also uh, had also converted to Catholicism. And for them, it wasn't really a, a conflict or a contradiction. Actually, someone asked Una Trubridge, um after Rector Follett died towards the end of Trubridge's life. And um, a friend asked how uh, Trubridge reconciled her relationship with Radcliffe Hall with her Catholic faith. And the friend asked, like, what did you do at confession? I mean, how did you deal with this when you went to confession? And Trubridge basically replied, there was nothing to confess, which we can interpret in different ways, whether she felt that lesbian sex didn't count under within a Catholic framework, whether she felt that it wasn't a sin. Um, but in any sense, they had a kind of idiosyncratic way of interpreting faith and absolutely made it work for themselves. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Faith on their own terms. Yeah, why not? (laughs) (laughs) But to return to the trial, so... Everybody shows up, even people who don't like the book and don't like Hall, and they're all there to defend it. But they lose, don't they? So in the UK, they lose. Um, And actually, all the expert witnesses, uh, which are there, all the literary experts, which are the kind of like elite of British modernist culture at the time, they don't even get to speak because um, James Duck. The editor has friends in very high places, and both uh, the Home Secretary, uh, a guy called Sir William Joynson Hicks, very much agrees with his judgment, agrees that the book should be obscene, actually advises the publisher Jonathan Cape to withdraw the book, which Cape also does early on. Um, But then it still goes to trial, and the magistrate there, a guy called Sir Byron, also basically just agrees that the book is obscene and says, I don't even need to listen to literary experts because whether or not the book has literary merit has nothing to do with the fact uh, whether it's obscene. So, of course, under the law at the time, a book could be a a piece of literary genius or artistic genius if there were passages within the book that were obscene in the sense that they could corrupt the minds of those who were open to influence, then a book should be censored. And so basically, Sir Byron says, I don't need to listen to, let's say, Virginia Woolf or E.M. Forster tell me it's a good book. He actually says, if it's a good book, it makes it even worse. If it's a good book, then it's going to be more influential. More people are going to read it. More people are going to be seduced by its rhetoric. So the better it is in terms of its literary merit, the more dangerous this book is. And so he says, I don't need to listen to anyone. I know it's an obscene book and I'm going to censor it. And he does. And the book is banned, seized, destroyed uh, in the UK. In Ireland, they had exactly the same censorship law where they claimed literary merit could be a mitigating factor. But in reality, it became, if you don't want your children to read it, it should be banned. And it's amazing how in trying to create this new Irish censorship law, they pretty much replicated an extreme interpretation of the British system. That is interesting. So it's banned in the UK. And everything is seized and no one's able to get copies anymore. But it is still being published in Paris, isn't it, at that time? Oh, yes. So Jonathan Cape was quite, uh, had a had a kind of strategy. So um, after James Douglas publishes that piece in the Sunday Express, um, basically Jonathan Cape immediately writes to the Home Secretary, so decides themselves to write to the Home Secretary, sends them a copy of the book and says, if we should withdraw it, if you think it's proceed, we will withdraw it. So that's the kind of strategy on the surface level. 
But Jonathan Cape also does something else. So Jonathan Cape basically decides to send um, the printing molds to the Pegasus Press in France, which was famous for publishing slightly obscene or dangerous texts. And of course, France had more relaxed censorship laws anyway. So Jonathan Cape plays this game where um, he pretends to work with the authorities and remove the book, but really smuggles the uh, the, the molds to to Paris so that the Pegasus Press can immediately start reprinting the book. Um, and they do that straight away. And of course, because of the whole scandal around it, everyone wants to read it. Uh, people who are in France buy it and read it. There are orders from all over the world and people are uh, the Pegasus Press is exporting it. But it's also sold semi-legally in Britain. So there are booksellers in Britain who are ordering it from France and then basically selling it under the table to British uh, readers as well. So everyone is reading it. <laughs> Well, that is interesting because I presumed the Irish state was banning something that, that was already banned. So it is in circulation. So it is potentially available through the back door in Ireland. I don't think any Irish bookseller would take the risk of selling such a book. So it's published in Paris, circulating in the UK, and then the drama moves stateside, doesn't it? Everything blows up in America once it starts getting published over there by another press. Absolutely. So there's a whole... American censorship trial that unfolds in late 1928 and early 1929 as well. And the American censorship trial hasn't actually received that much attention, but it's also a really interesting moment around the book. Um, so basically what happens is that originally the uh, book was meant to be published by Knopf um, in the US. And basically they withdraw. So when the whole scandal starts to unfold in the UK, Blanche Knopf writes to Reckler and says, we can't publish the book. We can't even try to defend a book in America that uh, hasn't even been defended successfully in the author's own country. So basically, Knopf publishers totally withdraw from the book. And this is a moment of real crisis for Reckler Falk, because in a sense, they were hoping that it would be published in the US at least. But then another publisher steps in called uh, Kovici Frieda, and they basically decide to publish the book. And they do that. And then an American censorship trial takes place. And it's kind of drawn out. So it begins in December 1928. And then there are a few appeals. And it ends in April 1929. But basically, things take a slightly different turn here, because the book is eventually allowed to be published. So the censorship trial fails. And it's really interesting what happens here. There's um, the American defense attorney is a guy called Morris Ernst, who would later on, a few years later, also defend Ulysses by James Joyce in, in the U.S. in the 1933 censorship trial. And basically, when it comes to the Well of Loneliness, Ernst has a really interesting strategy. He basically compares the Well of Loneliness to a French novel called Mademoiselle de Montpin by Théophile Gautier, which is a book that was published in 1835 in France. It's a totally different text. But in any case, he uses that book because it also has lesbian content. It deals with lesbian sexuality. And there was a previous trial in the US where the New York state courts had decided that Mademoiselle de Montpin as a whole was not obscene and that it should be published in the US. So basically, Ernst makes this argument and says, if Mademoiselle de Maupin, which is far more explicit, far more graphic, far more obscene with regard to its lesbian content, if that book can be published in the US, then surely a kind of very decent, uh, very modest book like The Well of Loneliness also uh, 
has to be published in the US. And there's a little bit of back and forth and people disagree with him. But ultimately, this very creative um, juristic strategy really pays off. And eventually, The Well of Loneliness can be published. It's sold uh, very widely in the US. And it's really interesting because, um, again, there's a kind of like national rhetoric that comes in at the end. So when the book is eventually allowed to be published, uh, when it's deemed not obscene, the New York Times book review runs this whole article where it says the most controversial book of the century suppressed in England, vindicated by an American court. So basically saying, oh, aren't we much more progressive than the English that we can publish this book and circulate this book? And the American publisher produces a new victory edition. So there's a whole new kind of publicity around the book. And again, people buy it. Of course, it's also then sold and exported back to the UK. So again, I mean, thousands of people are reading it. Reckler Fall and Una Trubich also receive hundreds of letters from people all over the world saying how much the book means to them, that they've read it, that they've learned from it, that they've found themselves in the book. So the censorship trial in the UK is totally meaningless and um, people are absolutely reading it. It's the classic example that the censorship attempts make it a famous book that everyone wants to read. It is the classic example of blacklisting failing to suppress a book, but encouraging readership. It's just brilliant. Absolutely. When does it become sort of more legal to be sold in the UK? Does it stay underground for a long time or is it finally brought onto the mainstream bookshelves that you can just walk in and pick it up off? So it's really interesting. Um, after Rector Fall dies in 1943, later in the 40s, Una Trubridge, who becomes the executor of the estate, Trubridge wants to um, release a new UK edition of The Well of Loneliness because she knew how much the book meant to Rector Fall and she really kind of wants to honor Hall's legacy by publishing the book again in the UK. And she basically gets some advice from publishers and also from the Home Secretary at the time. And they basically tell her anyone who will try to publish this book, there will be another court case and it's not possible to publish it in the UK. But then something kind of unusual happens in that another publisher does decide to publish a, a new edition of the book in 1949. It does get published by the Falcon Press in the UK and there is no legal challenge. So we don't really know why nothing happens, but the Falcon Press does publish it in 1949 and it's printed and it will stay in circulation and in print in the UK since the late 40s. So um, since then it has been published. Obviously now there are lots of kind of classic editions of the book as well. Um, it's been translated into different languages. And also in 1974, um, BBC Radio 4, they had a show called Book at Bedtime and basically uh, The World of Loneliness was read to the British public on the radio in the 70s. So I think then the book definitely has arrived in a sense. And since then, I think the book has, for better or worse, become this classic of lesbian, queer, trans uh, literature and culture. And I mean, it's a book that's very meaningful for a lot of people. But we also should say that it is a deeply problematic book. Um, it's classist, it's racist, it's nationalist. It promotes a very promotes a very narrow image of the so-called respectable white upper class English sexual invert. So it's not uh, a very inclusive book. It's in some ways not even a radical book uh, in the kind of image of sexual inversion it, it presents. So I think we need to be quite careful to disentangle all the problematic legacies of the book as well. But I think, as we said, because of the censorship trials and the scandals surrounded, it, it has this important place within queer and trans culture. Actually, my ebook calls it a seminal lesbian study. <laughs> I was like, yeah. really? You use the word seminal, lads? Come on. <laughs> we need to stop using that word in general and especially for this. 
Oh, that is just such a fascinating censorship history. It's a wonderful example of all of this moral panic and the international connections as well, how books cross borders and everything. But I think we'll try and do censorship bingo. Now, I'm not holding out much hope that we'll get... If we get five, I'll be impressed. (laughs) So, to begin with, breasts. I didn't notice any reference to boobs at all. I don't think so. No, definitely no bestiality, no sex work. Racism. I think so. I think it's definitely a racist text. So we can definitely tick that box. Unfortunately, yes. It's extremely pro-English in a very upper class English kind of way. Mm. Drugs. Were there drugs in the book? I mean, only in the sense that it affirms Stephen's respectability. So Stephen is quite horrified by some of the Parisian subcultures. And there's a moment where they go to this queer club in Paris and they're horrified by all the sexual inverts that are drinking and taking drugs and really struggle to identify with that community. So, yes, there are drugs, but uh, I think the only purpose they serve is to make Stephen look even holier and more respectable. (laughs) So they are there, but not in a very subversive sense. No. Hmm. I think even mentioning them is bad. <laughs> I think we'll take it. That's that's the rules. A mention gets a tick. Politics. I mean, apart from obviously the politics of sex and gender, there are no politics politics. No, I don't think so. Nothing subversive or scandalous. No. Swearing. God, no, it's, it's so holy, the language. Yes. <laughs> Infidelity. Well, nobody's married, are they? No. No. Crime. I suppose a lot of the sexual behavior is technically a crime. So I think we could take that one. Genitalia. No, really, it's not explicit. Just if anyone's looking for explicit sex in any way, do not read this book. No, I mean, the two explicit passages or moments that people pick up on, there's one where it says, um, she kissed her full on the lips as a lover. That's how far it goes. And then there's another one where it says, that night they were not divided. So um, (laughs) that's as far as it goes. But it's really interesting. I did a lot of work on Rector Falls Archive at the Harry Ransom Center. And when you look at some earlier drafts, there is more explicit sexual language in the earlier draft. So Rector Falls was capable of writing about sex more explicitly, but then I think very deliberately decided to tone that down. So it's really interesting how you can see when when it gets closer to publication, they take out the more explicit sexual references. So I found that very interesting just to see how even try to write about sex more directly but of course it's not there in the final published Mm. version. And in spite of that, it got banned. That must have been quite frustrating for them, really. Absolutely. And I think just the fact, as we said earlier, that Hall decided to affirm desire, sex, relationships between women. I mean, Sir Byron in the trial picks up on one passage where Stephen describes their relationships with women as good, good, good. That word is repeated three times. And Sir Byron cites that passage in the court and says, how can I allow a book to be published that describes sexual relationships between women as good, good, good? Um, And that's enough. That's all it takes. Because it's lesbian propaganda, apparently. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Next up, abortion. Well, no, no no way. Orgies? Was there? No. No, it's very tame. It is. (laughs) Sexual assault? I didn't think so, no. I don't think so. Uh, Extramarital pregnancy? Definitely not. Masturbation? No. Sex toys? No. Feminism? Not really. I don't think you could. No, you no. Could take that. <laughs> no. 
divorce. No, because nobody's married, nobody's divorced. No contraception, no menstruation. Blasphemy. I suppose really we could take that on the basis of all the godly stuff affirming uh, gender and sexuality that is not mainstream. Absolutely. I mean, Hall would have been horrified by that. Uh, you know, obviously they absolutely thought, thought the book was not blasphemous, but it was absolutely read as such. I think the kind of biblical Christian rhetoric that was used definitely caused even greater concern. So yes, we can tick that, I think. Certainly. Oral sex, no, once again, no sex acts really described. There's no graphic violence. But finally, of course, the last square is queer content. So yes, it's... yes. Uh, 100% a queer text. Only four out of 25. That is so low. That's one of the lowest scores so far. I think I'll have to go and check. But yeah. I'm not surprised. People are always so disappointed. They think it's going to be like the lesbian or queer Lady Chatterley's lover or um, Tropic of Cancer. And it's just not. It really isn't. No. It just shows you how you can achieve notoriety as a book about sex without having any sex in it. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jana. That was just wonderful. I mean, all of that story of the moving across borders with the book and Radcliffe Hall's attempt to write something that was subversive, but not too subversive, and then ended up becoming one of the most famous band authors of the 20th century. It's just brilliant. Yes, thank you so much. Now, does anyone feel poisoned, degraded or corrupted after all that? Unfortunately, I don't. But the 1930s censors really oversold the dangers of literature. The language around censorship at this time was so inflammatory and the books were so innocuous. But a moral panic around sexuality and gender started by journalists does feel depressingly familiar right now. In the next episode, I'll be taking a deep dive into John McGahran's The Dark. When the book was banned in 1965, the McGahran affair became a defining moment in Irish censorship history. The Dark is a fabulous book that helped change Irish society in ways its author never anticipated. It was such a big deal that I'm going to need two episodes to tell you all about the smut, the scandal and the politics. The bishop we all love to hate, Archbishop John Charles McQuaid, played a starring role in this year-long censorship controversy. I can't wait to tell you all about it. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.